Welcome to the podcast edition of Coaching Through Chaos, bringing you what you need to succeed. And now, here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hi there, welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, bringing you what you need to succeed. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. I bring you interviews every week with guest experts who will inspire, motivate, and empower you. New episodes are launched every Tuesday with an article to go along with it on my blog at coachingthroughchaos.com. Now, if you're listening to me, well, you've already found me, but if you want to tell your friends about the show, let them know that they can find me on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, tunein.com, and of course, on my website, coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast. Today is episode 13. I'm going to call it Lucky 13 because we're still being found on the new and noteworthy pages of several categories on iTunes, and we've been there since we launched in June. My goal here is to empower people through information, and I want to share that information with as many people as possible. I also want to remind you that in order for the show to survive, people need to find us. So I'm hoping that if you're listening to me and you like what we're doing, you'll give us some positive ratings on whichever site you're listening from. Those reviews help us stay on those front pages of the sites. And of course, it makes me feel good to see your positive words. Thanks so much for that. What do I cover here? Well, all sorts of topics. You'll find episodes on relationships, finances, addictions, achievement, personal strength, invention and entrepreneurship, health and wellness, and so much more. And each month, I do a special show just for our veteran population. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest expert, feel free to drop me a line at drmullen at coachingthroughchaos.com. Before we get into today's topic, I want to quickly remind you that I have a special thank you gift for listening. When you sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast, I'll send you a free downloadable copy of my ebook, Five Ways It's 100 Tips for Living a Happier, Healthier Life. This is a book of 20 lists of five ways to improve various aspects of your life. I give you actionable tips on getting the job you want, how to quit smoking, how to improve your relationship, time management, and so much more. It's so worth signing up just to grab the free book. I wrote the book after compiling these lists for many years and seeing what works most efficiently with my clients. I hope you find it helpful and feel free to share it with anyone you think may benefit from it. Know that if you do sign up for the mailing list, I will never share your email address, nor will I spam you. Okay then, let's get into today's show. Have you known someone who, no matter what life throws at them, they just seem to be able to roll with the punches? Maybe you know someone who has overcome some big emotional obstacles with grace, like the unexpected loss of a loved one. When someone bounces back from life's unexpected occurrences, we call that resiliency. My guest today is an expert in resiliency. Christian Moore is a licensed clinical social worker who has dedicated his life's work to helping both kids and adults understand and increase their resiliency. Christian is very open about the obstacles he's had to overcome in his life. The primary one was figuring out how to get the education he wanted while having what's considered a moderate to severe learning disability. Christian will tell you all about his struggle in our interview. I want to tell you why you should listen and what Christian has to say and about his expertise. 
Christian is a foremost authority on the subject of resiliency. He is the author of The Resilience Breakthrough, 27 Tools for Turning Adversity into Action. This book is for adults who want to figure out their resilient strengths and learn how to build on them. The book can be used by individuals and even corporate organizations looking to build resiliency within their companies. But that's just for the adults. If you've got kids, you may have already heard of Christian's school-based program. Christian is the founder of the Why Try program. Why Try brings resilient skills training to kids and teens all over the U.S. and abroad. And I say you may have already heard of it because it's in 22,000 schools across the U.S., and the evidence-based Why Try program is cited in textbooks as a formidable way to build resiliency skills. But why do we need to be more resilient? According to the Mayo Clinic, a person who is resilient may be protected from various mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety. Resiliency can help offset factors that increase the risk of mental health conditions such as being bullied or having previous trauma. And if you have an existing mental health condition, being resilient can improve your ability to cope. Resilience won't make your problems go away, but resilience can give you the ability to see past them, find enjoyment in life, and better handle stress. Being resilient doesn't make you not feel stress, adversity, or trauma, and when these things do happen, you will still have the normal responses like anger, grief, and pain, but if you're resilient, you'll be able to keep functioning both physically and psychologically. And when kids are more resilient, they are more apt to get better grades, they deal with the drama of teenage life less dramatically, and they learn innate coping skills for stress management and problem solving. Now that's a fact that can make anyone want to take an inventory of their resilient strengths and build on them. All right then, we're about to get into the interview with Christian. I want to say that for me, it was a privilege to talk to him. Christian has been known to be booked up to 260 days a year for speaking engagements, and you'll understand why when you hear the interview. He's quite dynamic. But the Coaching Through Chaos podcast is his first podcast interview. I was thrilled to have him join me. He really is a dynamo in his energy and passion for what he's doing. Join me in giving a warm welcome to Christian Moore. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Muller, bringing you what you need to succeed. Christian, you're a licensed clinical social worker who founded whytry.org to help teach kids and teens about resiliency, and you've written the wonderfully helpful book for adults called The Resilience Breakthrough, 27 Tools for Turning Adversity into Action. Resiliency has been one of my favorite subjects to teach to my clients and students, so let's get right into this. How do you define resiliency? In the book, we define resilience as the ability to bounce back when you have every reason to shut down, but you fight on. Resilient people have both tapped and untapped reserves, enabling them to overcome and thrive as they face the setbacks, challenges, and fears of daily life. People often ask me when I'm out speaking is, what do I mean by untapped reserves? Growing up, I had basically two talents. I could talk nonstop, and I could draw really good. So as a student, they sent me to the principal's office all the time for nonstop speaking. Every five minutes, they'd send me to the principal's office. And in Maryland, they have corporal punishment. And they would literally beat me with a paddle for talking nonstop. And I uh, I focused on resilience, kind of dedicated my life to resilience. I realized 
the principal, instead of beating me with a paddle, should have said, hey, the, the skill to speak nonstop could be something that could really increase your resilience. As you get older, you know, the number one fear in this world is public speaking. So he should have been celebrating my nonstop speaking instead of beating me with a paddle. Right. So you started looking at your own ways of bouncing back at a young age. You have a personal story later on in life, even, of how you came to learn that your lowest point could also be your best friend, and it has to do with your graduation story. Could you tell us that story and what you mean by that about making your lowest point your best friend? Probably the best way to explain my graduation story is to start a little bit with my wife. I met this beautiful girl, and I thought, man, I'd love to marry her, but I had learning disabilities. When I was 28 years old, I never made over $6 an hour. The average income for people of my background with kind of moderate to severe learning disabilities is about $12,000 a year. And I thought, man, I love this girl so much, I better break up with her. I said, Wendy, you need to marry someone that works in the high-tech industry that can make some good money. You know, I might be fun on a date, but you do not want to marry me. So I broke up with Wendy, and she came to me a couple days later. And she's like, look, Christian, I know you're learning disabled, dumb, lazy, rebellious, attitude problem. She gave me all my labels, and she literally proposed to me. She's like, Christian, if you marry me, you never, ever have to worry about employment. I'll support you. I'll take care of you for the rest of your life. And I thought to myself, I may be learning disabled, but this homeboy ain't stupid. That's the woman for me. And so I married her because I really did love her, not because I never had to work another day in my life. Well, she tells me to apply to the local community college. And I was like, there's no way they're going to let me into this community college because my learning disabilities, my background. Anyways, I applied to the local community college and got accepted. And I'm jumping up and down on the couch. And my wife's like, Christian, look, it's open enrollment. They let everybody in. So, so I'm like, why didn't they tell me that the real requirements to go to college was a GED or all D minuses? I had no clue what the real requirements were to go to college. So my wife worked two jobs. I worked two jobs. She read all my papers, all my textbooks to me, helped me with my papers. I'd hand write out my papers. She would type them up. I came up with something called the No F Game Plan. I went to every class, sat on the front row. I did all the homework assignments and did enough extra credit to get a D minus. Because I realized you get just as much credit with a D or D minus as you do with an A plus. And so I thought, you know, I'll just go as far as I can through college. Mm -hmm. I was at a community college and transferred to a university. I was working my way through the university and I was doing this no F game plan, trying to get through. But I couldn't graduate because I couldn't do the math or foreign language. And so I was about to give up. I was really frustrated, but I just kept hanging in there. I was studying sometimes 30 hours to pass the test. I'd ask my peers in college, how many hours did you study? They were studying three to five hours. And I got right up to the point where I could graduate, and they approved for me to graduate. And I get a call from the dean of the College of Home and Family Sciences says to me, you can't graduate. He had my transcripts in front of him. He's like, there's no way you should be on this college campus, you know, with your background and stuff. I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But basically, told me I couldn't graduate. I was devastated. Yeah, pulling the carpet out from under you right there. Yeah, so I literally, I'm a grown man, and my legs came out from underneath me. I remember just hitting the floor, and I was in a fetal position crying. I could not believe that I'd put in it literally, I'd spent $60,000. No one gave me a dollar for college. I put all this work in. And I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to graduate. And what happened was I said to the gentleman, I said, can I please just come to your office and talk to you? And he said, yeah, you got to come right now to my office. And it's kind of an emotional thing that took place. If you don't mind, I'll just read just two paragraphs out of my book. Sure. And we'll literally summarize what happened there. I sat down across from him. He leaned over his desk and shouted. How did you pull this off? He then slammed his fist on the table. 
The condemning papers jumped with force. I took a deep breath. My extra credit hustle, and I was just going to class every day, turning my homework, doing all of the extra credit. My childhood grocery store exploits and my years of fighting for this degree had all prepared me for this moment of truth. I was not going back to the fetal position. I was not going back down. I was going to be resilient. I looked the dean in the eye and said, when I asked other students how many hours a day they studied for a test, they said three to five. Sir, I studied 20 hours for the same test. I did 10 times more work than any other student in the history of this university. I am the hardest working student who has ever showed up on this college campus. I didn't miss one day of school. As a side note, I also didn't miss any homework assignments. I worked as hard as I possibly could. I learned everything there was to learn about my profession that I could possibly study. If you let me graduate, I'm going to impact millions of lives. I will make sure everybody has access to the kind of hope I discovered being here on this campus. Going to school has been like winning the Super Bowl for me. I know I shouldn't have been accepted, but I was, and I deserve every credit. Sir, you can't stop me from getting this degree. I earned it. As I explained my dreams and goals to him, I began to see a visible change in the dean's demeanor. He leaned back in his chair. His face was more relaxed now. Wow, I wasn't expecting that, he said. I can see that you're here under very unique circumstances. He looked up at the ceiling, then back at me. Christian, you're going to graduate this week. Good luck in graduate school, son. And that's how it shook out. And so it went from being one of the worst moments of my life to one of the best moments. So I was able to graduate from college with a sixth grade math level, a seventh grade reading and writing level. Now, millions of kids go to college with mild learning disabilities to moderate, but less than 2% with moderate to severe learning disabilities get a master's degree. And 0.5%, not even 1%, get a master's degree. So statistically, I had a better chance of playing the NBA and becoming LeBron James than having this interview with you right now, Colleen. Right. Isn't that something, you know, I know that you know that you were pulling from all sorts of resilient traits to even go to the dean's office that day. I just think it's wonderful that you have that experience and then you've turned it into teaching everybody about resiliency. Which leads me to ask you, if somebody's out there going, yeah, but I'm not that strong, can they learn to stand up for themselves? Can they learn to bounce back easier? What's your belief on resiliency? Can you teach this? You know, it's interesting. In college, they told me, you know, either you have resilience or you don't have resilience. You can't give someone a prescription for resilience. Now, 16 years later, I beg to differ. Yes, absolutely. Resilience can be learned. I believe resilience is already inside all of us. It's a human trait. For example, what the sperm and egg has to overcome just for us to be born is resilience. You know, our, our life starts with resilience. Over the past 16 years, we have taught resilience to thousands of students in all 50 states. Yeah, I mean, you really are making that impact that you swore to make it at that speech. Yeah, you know, for example, you see people like Robert Downey Jr., who was arrested multiple times, somewhere learned how to be resilient and become this great megastar. Oprah overcame abuse and impacted the world. Yes. Stanford professor Carol Dweck has illustrated through research that most people with a growth mindset can increase their capacity in any area. It's that effort effect. Now, further research on resilience shows most people have a capacity for resilience. So I've dedicated my life is pulling that resiliency out of them. 
And so much of resiliency is being able to turn pain into power. And even the story of your graduation speaks of what you mentioned in the book, which is trending now, is post-traumatic growth. Uh So you talk specifically of turning pain into power. And why do you think that's so important for moving forward in life? You know, again, the reality of life is we are all going to have opposition and pain. And out of pain, emotions are born. I have become fascinated with how we can take our negative emotions and the energy from them as fuel to create productive outcomes. For example, I was told many times I couldn't go to college. College wasn't an option for me because of my learning differences. I used that disrespect and rage as fuel to get a master's degree. I had a professor who came to me in college and said, Christian, if you can get a college degree, my degree is worth less. I just found out that professor is going to be teaching this year out of a college textbook that my Y Tri program is in is evidence-based social and emotional education. And so that became a fuel source for me. Now he has to lecture on my theory. <laughs> America is the greatest country in the world. And another example was just the other day, I, I travel a lot and I was in a restaurant and I was being totally ignored by this waiter, getting horrible service. I, I literally live in restaurants, so I'm oversensitive sometimes to bad service. And I was feeling rage inside. I was feeling anger inside. And I just started laughing. I thought to myself, okay, Christian, how can you take this anger and this rage and do something productive with it? And I said, okay, what I'm going to do is when he comes back, I'm going to increase my kindness. I asked him about himself a little bit. He told me about his son that was going through a hard time. And the whole dynamic of the service changed. And so one thing I'm excited about now is when we have these negative emotions, we can literally use the fuel source to create a productive outcome. Absolutely. With this waiter, you flip the switch, and that's something that you detail in your book. I don't know if you want to walk us through all the four steps to flipping the switch, but can you talk about the concept that you mentioned there, flipping the switch? When you flip the switch, you stop for a moment, and you realize that you can turn your pain into power. Flipping the switch is awareness that you have a choice on how you respond to a situation or difficulty. It's like putting on a new pair of glasses and you're seeing the issue from a little bit of a different perspective. To give you an example, one of my most recent situations where I had to flip the switch, a few weeks ago I was speaking in Texas and about an hour away from giving my speech, I'm driving into this town and I get a call from my son Cooper and he says, hey dad, and he's in crisis, I can tell you. He's like, dad, dad, mom just went to the hospital in an ambulance. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what is going on? And I didn't respond well. I'm driving down the road and the road's going blurry. I'm looking for a place to pull over, but where I was driving, there was no place to pull over. I'm doing everything I can to keep my composure. And my son can't really explain to me what's happening with mom. And so it's this highly, highly stressful situation. And I pull into the place where I'm going to give the speech and there's an audience waiting for me to talk. And the person who's traveling with me is like, Christian, there's no way you can give the speech. So I said, look, let me call and see if I can get on the next flight. I checked the next flight, and it's the flight I'm already on. So there's nothing I can do but the guy traveling with me. is just like, no, Christian, you still don't have to give this speech. I said, you know what? I'm trying to teach millions of people how to flip the switch. This is a very emotional, tough situation. I'm going to flip the switch right now and give the greatest speech I've ever given. And I just tried to maximize that situation. I was feeling intense fear. No, my wife was in the hospital, loneliness, all these emotions. And I just said, okay, how can I use this as my best friend? And what I'm excited about it, it's taken me 45 years to realize how to flip that switch. The first step of flipping the switch is just knowing you have a switch. For the first 35 years of my life, I was like a puppet, basically. If someone yelled at me or I dealt with a difficulty, 
you know, I, I would yell back. I would use the difficulty as a reason to hurt myself, hurt other people, give up. Right. Just react. Yeah. And now I realize, wow, I have this switch that can flip. It actually makes life really fun when you know you have this, this switch. And we're teaching this switch from kindergartners to high school students, and a lot of adults don't even know they have this switch they can flip. So that's kind of the first step. It's just the awareness you have this switch. The second step of flipping the switch is you have to acknowledge, assess, and accept that you have a problem. My reality is I have learning differences. I have severe ADHD. I grew up in a home where both my parents have some mental health issues. That's the reality of my situation. So today at 45 years old, I say to myself, how can I maximize my ADHD? How can I maximize this energy? How can I use the energy as my best friend? For example, now as a therapist, when I diagnose a child with ADHD, I'll bring a cake into my office. I'll pass out party hats, those things that blow out. And I'll say, look, we're going to have a party. And the parents are looking at me like I'm crazy. Why are we having a party? <laughs> because the first couple of years I was a therapist, the family would come in depressed. I would diagnose them right. more depressed. I'm like, no, I'm not going to spend the next 30 years depressing youth and family. So I would literally bring this cake in, light the candles. And I'd say, you have one of the greatest gifts. People would kill to have this energy. I'm going to show you step by step how to use this energy as your best friend. And I would show the parents data that the vast majority of CEOs and entrepreneurs have ADHD. They work 100-hour work weeks. So it's just reframing that ADHD. But first, you have to accept, hey, there's a problem. The question is, how do we use that problem as a fuel source to make better decisions? I have to say, I love the cake idea. If I'd ever seen anybody do that at all of the meetings over the years with kids, that's just brilliant. And what an amazing reframe. Well, I love it. The parents would literally walk out of my office with a hop in their step, their arm around their child, because we've just explained to them, hey, how this can be your best friend. Even if I diagnosed a child with conduct disorder, I would even do that. I had a kid in my office a few years ago who stole three cars, and the police officer was like, this kid's a genius. We cannot figure out how he did this like in one hour. And so I said, look, you're creative, you're bold, you're a risk taker. I broke out the cake, and I said, look, I'm going to show you how to take those same attributes you used to steal those three cars to be a great entrepreneur one day, to make better decisions. To be really frank with you, I really haven't seen a situation that cannot be reframed. I agree with you on that, and I'll just say I think your reframes are brilliant. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. The, the third step is to ask the flip the switch question. And that question is, is just, how can I use this challenge to better my circumstances or create a productive outcome right now? And one thing I encourage people to do when they're in a situation like this is do the opposite of what people would normally do in a similar situation. For, for example, a couple of years ago, when I was going through college. My wife had lost her job. I didn't have a job at the time. And we were pretty rock bottom financially. I'm like, man, what are we going to do? And Wendy's applying a lot of different jobs. She'd go in, she'd come back out depressed, frustrated. And in front of one business, I just said to her after a couple of weeks, I said, look, let's just try something crazy. Just go in there and tell them you'll work the first two weeks for free. So she sits down and says, I want this job so bad. I'll work, you know, two weeks for free. And that caught the employer's attention. And he said, you know, you really stood out. All the people I interviewed, and a couple of days later, she got the job. And so sometimes I think we have to just do something out of the box. We have to do something where we really do the opposite of what people would normally do. I think being resilient is, you know, we have to have humor. It's a big part of being resilient. We have to shake things up, not take ourselves so seriously. And then the last step there is, is pay attention to how you feel as you flip the switch. Now, I almost have to give a warning with this, and I, well, I've heard this from thousands of people. 
that as they start to do these four steps, it becomes very addictive. I'll see people in their 60s, they're just learning how to flip the switch, and they're like, it is so fun. Now when I have a crisis or I have a challenge in my life, I literally get excited that I have an opportunity to approach this different. They're like, why did it take me 60 years to learn how to flip the switch? I really believe resiliency is a major social justice issue. In the next 20 years, it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue. Millions and millions of people will understand resiliency and where it comes from, and millions and millions of people won't. And I, I really believe that resiliency is the great equalizer. It transcends socioeconomic status, culture, race, the neighborhood you grew up in, age, you know, all these different issues. It's the most powerful thing I've come across that really levels the playing field. One of the funnest things for me is I love sharing with kids who are growing up in the most difficult circumstances, you know, how to use the poverty, the divorce, the discrimination, the anger, the, the, the emotions that come from those issues as the reason to turn in their homework, to stay in school, to make better decisions. We're literally showing kindergartners how to flip this switch. And then we're sharing this K through 12th grade. We've been teaching this on death row. K through death row from the playpen to the state pen, literally. Wow. That brings us right to the meat of it. So we know what resiliency is. You've defined four sources of resilience. Got street resilience, relational resilience, resource resilience, and rock bottom resilience. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about each one of these? Yeah. So my goal in coming up with these four sources really was born out of a frustration. I had read hundreds of books on resilience, I studied the topic of resilience, and all I could usually come across was the attributes of resilience, like hard work, determination, perseverance. But I wanted to know where was it born? Where does resiliency come from? So I started looking at thousands of people at their lives and, and what role resiliency played in their life. And I noticed four common attributes kept popping out as I looked at highly resilient people. And the first thing that popped out was relational resilience. And all that means is your greatest motivation to not give up is the knowledge that others need you or depend on you. Mm -hmm. For example, I have two kids named Cooper and Carson, eight and 12-year-old boys. If I never got invited to speak again, I will go work at four McDonald's to put food in these kids' mouths. I'll do whatever it takes. My resiliency is going to kick in because my relationship with them. For a teacher, it could be for their students. My business partner, Hans, is someone who has an incredible amount of relational resilience. He makes good decisions. He's the CEO of our company. He has five kids. Now, me personally, I've had to really develop my relational resiliency because my parents' mental health issues, I didn't really attach to my parents as a kid. So relational resiliency is something that I'm constantly working at. I traveled 260 days a year as a speaker, which I should never have been traveling that much. But like I say, one of the reasons I was able to do that is because I didn't understand the power of relational resilience. So when I was coming up with this, I was comparing me and my, my business partner. Hans has an incredible amount of relational resiliency. But the next one, I realized he didn't have an ounce of street resilience. What I got kind of excited about is, oh my gosh, if I could teach Hans how to tap into street resiliency, I could double his resilience. So, for example, street resiliency is you take the pain of social inequality, disrespect, and mistakes and use it as fuel to propel you forward. And it could be any type of disrespect. It could be your ears are too big, your teeth aren't white enough, any type of disrespect or past mistake. There's so many people who feel disrespected, especially as I work in schools across this country. Kids will often say to me, you know, I feel disrespected. I feel people are judging me. So I say, look, how do you take that? and use it as a reason to become a greater human being. 
And we have a lot of strategies to show them how to do that. You know, a great example of street resiliency is Nelson Mandela. We know the story of him being in the prison camp for 27 years. The same guy disrespected him, would verbally abuse him and stuff. When he became the president of South Africa, the first thing he did is he invited that guy to his presidential inauguration. They became great friends. He was like, because you disrespected me, I'm going to become a greater human being. So one day it hit me that if I could develop my relational resilience and I had street resiliency, I could increase my resilience. If my business partner, who had almost no street resiliency, but had a lot of relational resiliency, then I could double his resilience. Yeah. I mean, you can tap into and help build each other's resilience, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the third place, the resiliency, I believe comes from is resource resiliency. And that's where you recognize that your resilience can be increased by tapping into the resources available to you. You know, for example, earlier I said I had two talents, you know, I could talk nonstop. I could draw really good. One of my contributions to mental health is I took everything in mental health, put it into picture form for kids, kind of took my art talent and maximized my art talent. You recognize that your resources include talents, relationships, physical assets, personality traits, and work ethic. As I'm out on the road speaking, I ran into a guy the other day that blew me out of the water. One of the greatest examples of resource resilience I've ever seen is Kyle Maynard, who was born with no arms, no legs, just had these little stubs. He recently put rubber balls in the end of these stubs and hiked to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And he just kind of maximized, you know, the resources that he had. He wrestled in high school and college with no arms, no legs. He just maximized what he had. You know, Helen Keller is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, when you hear stories of, did you say his name was Kyle? That put the... Kyle Maynard, yeah. Wow. When you hear stories like that, you just, I think you just get a grand picture of what resilience absolutely is when you see someone who can take that life circumstance and turn it into such an accomplishment. Yeah. When I was going to college, another example of resource resiliency is when my wife lost her job, we had no money coming in, our rent was $300. And I couldn't come up with this $300 in a million years. And I remember going out to our car, one of my rock bottom moments, I went out to the car and I sized it up. I thought, oh my gosh, we are, we've got to move into this car. And I went back into the house. And I said to my wife, I told you, you should not have married me. I told you your life is going to be hell if you marry me. And she kind of got angry, left the house. I'm like, oh man, what do I do about this? And I thought, well, you know, one of the resources I have, I can draw really good. I can paint. I love doing watercolor paintings. So I went to this place in my community called the River Bottoms multi-million dollar homes. And I painted a beautiful watercolor painting of this great big house. And then I would knock on the door and say, hey, I'm a local artist in the area. I was admiring your house. And I'd like to sell you this painting for $200. And the woman of the house gasps at the painting. And she's like, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on artwork that I don't like as much as this. This is worth way more than $200. I'm going to give you $600 for this painting. And so I remember floating off that doorstep because I had the $300 for the rent and, and another $300 left over. And I know to this day, if I never get invited to ever speak again or do what I'm doing, I can go paint rich people's houses and be able to support my family. And that's just maximizing your resources to be resilient. Yeah. So my goal is that when I'm working with someone, I want them to tap into that relational resilience. I want them to tap into that street resilience, that resource resilience. And my last one is, is rock bottom resilience. And that's when you're at your lowest point, you believe in your ability to change your circumstances and combat hopelessness and fight on. Now, everybody has their own personal rock bottom. One of my goals as a therapist is when I work with people, I figure out what their rock bottom moment is. 
And then one of the first things I focus on is how they can take that rock bottom moment and use it as like a nuclear fuel rod of energy to engage with life, to put more effort into what they're dealing with in their lives. For example, today, my son Carson, who's eight years old, was crying all morning, was having a tough morning, came and hugged me five times because he's getting braces today and doesn't want to get these braces. And, you know, that's his rock bottom moment. The first eight years of his life, I was just saying to him, okay, Carson, how can you use this? You know, kids are going to tease you now and you're going to deal with these issues, but this is how you can respond to this and just showing him how to take something negative and turn it into something positive. It hit me one day, I could learn more from a single mom living in a car with three kids than if I studied these gurus. I just became fascinated. It wouldn't enable mm-hmm. someone to put one foot in front of another when they have every reason to give up. Yeah, in the curriculum we have, in the book, in our curriculum, we have 27 boosters, we call them, to help people access these four sources of resilience. The book, just to remind everybody, is The Resilience Breakthrough. It's 27 tools for turning adversity into action. And I want to really be able to talk about why try also. So let's look at these boosters in each chapter on building the different resiliencies. Do you have two that maybe are your personal favorites? Yeah. Let me share this first one I really, really love. I call it be illogical. This means when moving forward, it doesn't seem logical. You have a million barriers in front of you. You do so anyway. This opens up potential unforeseen options. So you go through the motions, you don't shut down when you basically have every reason to give up. For example, it was illogical for me to go to college. I couldn't explain to people who would ask me, well, how are you going to get through? You have a sixth grade math level, seventh grade reading and writing level. How are you going to graduate from college? What I noticed was just, just by showing up, unforeseen options would happen. You know, professors took me under their wing and opened up tremendous doors for me. Getting married before I ever made you know, a livable wage, before I ever made over $6 an hour. Being an entrepreneur, when I went to write this book, The Resilience Breakthrough, people said to me, Christian, there's no way less than 2% of books get published. You might be able to self-publish, but you're not going to get a book published. And I just, I put 100% of effort. I I took over three and a half years to write this book. And I said, I'm going to make sure we have something real. We're going to be able to show people where resiliency really comes from. And I applied to one publisher and they published it, you know, now on a national level. And, you know, Greenleaf published the book and it was one of the highlights of my life. So what I've learned is, Just by showing up, unbelievable things happen. Absolutely. Acting illogical, showing up, great traits to be able to do. I think your book publishing story is just amazing. It really is tough to get a book published. So amazing that you come from the flip side of not even thinking college was something for you. And here you are uh, with a published book. That's certainly the story of resiliency right there. I appreciate that. The next one, the next booster and this falls under rock bottom resiliency, is something really simple, but one of the most powerful things I've ever come across. I call this discover the power of a future promise. You know, we all need something to look forward to. You know, for example, this morning, just knowing I get to wake up and talk to Colleen Mullen, you know, (laughs) and be on this podcast, coaching through chaos. I was excited. It gave me something to get out of bed and look forward to. Mm -hmm. It could be something as simple as, you know, a a great meal. You know, I'm, I'm a foodie. I travel all the time. I'm always looking for something great to eat. That's probably why I'm in top physical condition. No, just kidding. It would be really funny if you saw me in person. But anyways, <laughs> a hug at the end of the day, you know, a vacation. We all need something to look forward some to. Some type of hope. We all need that hope. Yeah. Instilling hope is one of those great things for rock bottom resilience. Yeah. When I was a little boy, yeah, I come home from school. There wasn't a lot of food in my house. And so I start punching holes in the wall. 
I was so angry. I'd open up the refrigerator 5,000 times, hoping something would appear in the refrigerator. After a couple of years of this, my mom got pretty burned out. So every morning, she'd give me a couple extra dollars. And she would say to me, before you come home, I want you to go to Dairy Queen and get this foot-long hot dog. And literally, I call this foot-long hot dog therapy. Just knowing that that hot dog was there for me, at the end of the day, I was going to walk to Dairy Queen and get this. It literally helped me get through school and through a lot of challenges. And so that just having something out there for us is is so important to look forward to. Right. That leads us right into the Why Try program, because you're talking about your stories when you were a kid and you've referenced a lot of things throughout the interview today about helping kids learn their resiliency. Now, the book is for the adults, but whytry.org is for the kids. Can you tell us how Why Try came about, what it is, and how a school or a family would have it implemented? Is it something for the schools, or do people hire somebody from Why Try to help them out? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, how it started is I went to work as a school social worker at an alternative school, and one day a school psychologist showed me that 80% of the kids I'm working with were visual learners. But almost 100% of what I was doing in counseling was verbal, cognitive talk therapy. And so when I found out that most of these kids were visual learners, I just started taking everything in mental health and putting it into pictures for kids. For example, if I was talking to a, a child about how to deal with peer pressure, getting out of a gang, stop doing drugs, I would draw a picture. I'm from Maryland. Maryland's the crab state. So I would draw a picture of a bunch of crabs inside of a pot. And I would say to the child, if I don't put a lid on this pot, why can't the crabs get out of the pot? And the kid would look at the picture and go, well, duh. The other crabs are reaching out and pulling them down. So I would say, hey, your friends you're skipping school with, you're doing drugs with, fighting with. All you're doing is you're pulling each other down. You're keeping each other in the pot. And then I would write different therapeutic questions written around the visual metaphor. Like, what would your future be like if you got out of this pot? What would your future be like if you stayed in this pot? And then we reinforced these visual pictures with music that they listened to. So everything from rap, hip-hop music, to rock, to all different kinds of styles of music. So the child visually sees it, they hear it in music they listen to, and then we have discussion questions that tie into the music, and then we have hundreds of physical activities that reinforce it in art activities. So whether the child's a visual learner, auditory learner, body kinesthetic learner, we just kind of took evidence-based mental health practice and started delivering it in a language that was relevant to the child. We believe relevancy is such an important thing when working with kids that are struggling. And the, the purpose of these 10 visual metaphors that we have, you know, reinforced with the music and the physical activities, is to teach the child how to be resilient, to give them the specific skills. And so what we do is we go into a school district and we train everyone from the counselors to the teachers in how to deliver this curriculum to kids. And then I also spend a lot of time, you know, I'll speak to parenting groups. We, we want the parents to have these skills. We want the kids to have these skills. The easiest way is just to contact Y-Try. We do several hundred staff developments all across the country. We work in all 50 states. We do some international work now from Australia to the UK, Canada. Our goal is just to put social and emotional education in a language that youth and families can really connect with. That's wonderful that you guys are having such reach now, and it's so needed. You mentioned that it's research-based or evidence-based, as we say. If someone's listening to this and they work at a school district and they know that this could be something that could be helpful, tell us what are the benefits that a school district or that the families will see from kids that participate in the Y-Try program? Interesting. A lot of parents will say to us, we're talking to our kids all the time about their decisions having consequences. You just put it in a language they can understand. You know, in the schools, they're worried about GPA and test scores. And one of the reasons we're in 22,000 schools is because we've been able to show 
as you lower children's anxiety, I mean by anxiety, right now, um, social anxiety is as high as it's ever been. You know, kids are worried about their shoes, their clothes, who's going to sit next to me, who just texted me, who didn't text me. And anxiety causes the brain to downshift, which causes learning to be inhibited. So as we lower kids' anxiety, they thrive more academically. Now, my main purpose was not to impact GPA and test scores. My main purpose was to help kids stay in school, learn how to have effective relationships, and and help them to thrive. So it has a huge impact on the school climate. It puts children in a position so they can focus on academics. Fantastic. Christian, I just want to say this has been fantastic. I think we do need to wrap up. So I'm going to say again that the book is The Resilience Breakthrough, 27 Tools for Turning Adversity into Action. And the program for the kids is whytry.org. You can find them at that website. And you are Christian Moore. And man, what a great interview. Thank you so much, Christian, for the time. It was a blast talking to you. If some of your listeners want to get a hold of me, the easiest way is at resilience underscore guys. I'm kind of known as the resilience guy. We'd love to connect with you. And I'll tell you, I admire the work you're doing. love the name Coaching Through Chaos. Thank you. It's so important. Thank you. I really appreciate that feedback. You're listening to Coaching Through Chaos, your host, Dr. Colleen Muller, bringing you what you need to succeed. Thank you, Christian Moore. It was truly my pleasure to feature you and let you tell your story and share your knowledge. What a fun and informative interview. Be sure to check out today's article that goes along with this episode on coachingthroughchaos.com slash blog so that you can connect with Christian and Try and utilize what they have to offer in your community, corporate forum, or even just for your own personal growth. Remember, the Coaching Through Chaos podcast is the place to come for resources to inspire, motivate, and empower you. In upcoming weeks, I've got some really special guests, which include an app developing team, a relationship expert, and a top podcaster. And of course, we've got our next veteran-focused episode in the next few weeks. Please check back weekly for new episodes on Tuesday. If you want to follow me between episodes, you can sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com slash podcast. And remember, when you do that, you'll get a free copy of my ebook, Five Ways. It's 100 Tips for Living a Happier, Healthier Life. You can find me on Twitter with the handle at Dr. Colleen Mullen. And Twitter is one of my favorite places for connecting with you. So please say hi if you're on there. And you can also find me on Facebook at Coaching Through Chaos. I hope you're having a great week, and if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.